It's Wednesday, September 1st. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The next big phase of our withdrawal from Afghanistan will be the resettlement of thousands of Afghans into communities across the country. Refugee organizations that deal with the State Department are ramping up their operations and have been told to expect some that have special immigrant visas and as many as 50,000 Afghans without visas. Depending on their status, it can complicate the process and change the services that can be provided to them. While it will be a huge undertaking for these organizations, Americans are already stepping up and offering their help and support. Michelle Hackman, reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for what's next for Afghan refugees. Next, President Biden officially marked the end of the Afghanistan war on Tuesday and continued to stand by his decision, saying he would not extend the forever war and disagreed with the criticism that evacuations could have started earlier. On the political front, the administration is trying to turn the page and focus on other priorities. But Republicans want to continue hammering him for the botched withdrawal. Some Republicans are pressuring minority leader Kevin McCarthy to press Biden harder on the issue and are refining their messages, hoping to act quickly. Olivia Beavers, congressional reporter at Politico, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. They'll stay on base till they complete the uh, special immigrant visa processing process, which is owned by the State Department with uh, support. We provide medical support. We provide uh, contract medical support as part of that. Joining us now is Michelle Hackman, reporter covering immigration at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Michelle. Thanks for having me. We are out of Afghanistan, but now we're looking to all the next steps. Uh, One of the biggest things that we're going to have to undertake as a country is resettling all the Afghans that were evacuated. Uh, And, uh, you know, a lot of U.S. refugee organizations are uh, really racing to hire new staff, uh, uh, prepare themselves for the influx of Afghans that they're going to help resettle. Uh, Apparently, there's nine nonprofit organizations that are contracted with the U.S. State Department to help refugees find homes, jobs, other social services. Uh, And and right now they're really in the ramp up stage and they've been told to expect, I think, 50,000 Afghans, uh, possibly more. Uh, So, Michelle, help us walk through what we're going to see with all this. Yeah, sure. And that number could actually go even higher than 50,000. We have evacuated tons of Afghans. Many of them are in the final stages of qualifying for what's called a special immigrant visa. That's designed for Afghans who worked alongside the American military, you know, worked at the American embassy. But a lot of people are coming that we evacuated, especially in the early days, who don't necessarily fit a visa category, but who definitely were extremely vulnerable if we left them in Afghanistan. So, you know, I'm talking about women's rights leaders, human human rights activists, people like that, who some of whom we've, we've had third countries agree to take them on, but many of whom will be brought to the United States. And those people are going to need help when they get here. You know, we can't just sort of dump them on the street to fend for themselves. Right. And that's where these organizations come in. Let's focus for a moment, please, if we can, uh, on the visas, because you get the special yeah. immigrant visa and that allows you to get help, social services, as I mentioned, different things like that. But for those that don't have those visas, they're not eligible for that. So the help that comes to them is going to come through private donations and other means. That's exactly right. So, you know, the special immigrant visa holders that I was just talking about, they are treated um, the same way as other refugees coming into the country sort of formally through the refugee program. We help those people, 
you know, find apartments to live in, enroll their kids in school. We give them a certain amount of health care assistance for a couple months, you know, food assistance for a couple months. It's, it's, you know, not a huge amount of help. We have this sort of tough love approach to refugees where we say, we're going to try to set you up with a job, but after that, you're kind of on your own. But we can't even do that for a lot of the people that we're bringing in uh, who don't have visas because we just, you know, the government hasn't allotted money to sort of provide those services to them. But the Biden administration wants them to receive many of those services. And so it's sort of asking these refugee resettlement organizations to step up and make it work somehow. And these uh, programs all also don't result in any permanent immigration status. Is that for both of them or, or how is that part going to work out? So visa holders, if you have a visa and you come to the United States, that results in a green card. If you come as a refugee or a special immigrant visa applicant. But if you don't, if you come to the U.S. otherwise, um, you are coming in on something called humanitarian parole. Now, that's not even a visa. It's just sort of a form of temporary permission to be here. It does not result in any kind of permanent immigration status. So that's an issue. All these people are going to have to be connected with immigration lawyers to apply for asylum or apply for some other kind of visa once they're here or else they'll fall out of status. But more immediately, it also means, yeah, exactly, because they're not a, a sort of form of formal visa holder that they're not going to get any kind of government assistance. And so these organizations are sort of scraping together private donations to make it work for them. Back to those organizations, uh, there was a lot of cutbacks that they've had in the past few years. So uh, like I said, they're in that ramp up stage, getting volunteers and, and other staffing so that they can help with the influx. Um, and, and on this other side of things, the, the, the good part is that they've been seeing a lot of uh, people, a lot of uh, Americans stepping up, saying that they want to help volunteer time, space, everything that they can possibly do. Right. It's a two sided story. So, you know, there, there are nine formal refugee resettlement organizations that have contracts with the federal government. There are obviously many more um, that do work alongside these organizations. But the ones that, you know, there are names that you'd be familiar with, the International Rescue Committee, the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, the Lutheran Church does this work, the Catholic Church does this work. They get paid by the government according to directly according to how many refugees they resettle. And under, you know, President Trump, there were fewer and fewer refugees to resettle. And so all of these organizations had to cut down staff, had to close offices. And so they came into this this current crisis sort of with fewer means than they would have had um, previous to now. Um, The flip side of that is that, you know, they're they're short staffed, but they're getting flooded with donations, with requests to volunteer with offers even, you know, I've, I've heard from a lot of people that uh, ordinary Americans, a lot of veterans are stepping forward and saying, you know, I have, a, I have an empty apartment that I own or I have a spare room in my house and I'd like a refugee to be able to stay here for a few weeks or whatever. And we're seeing major U.S. companies step up as well. We already heard about Airbnb saying that they're going to house up to 20,000 Afghan refugees possibly. And uh, Walmart is also trying to step up with some programs as well. Right, exactly. And I think we'll we'll see more of that as time goes on. You know, it's a it's a pretty politi- politically popular cause to support these Afghan refugees. I'd say probably more bipartisan than most other immigration issues, and so it it's an easy one for, you know, uh, corporate America to get involved in. And on that front, you know, the political side of things, I mean, really anything that needs to be changed with regards to the visas or 
um, you know, even uh, allowing some of these uh, Afghans that don't have that special immigrant visa. I mean, any of those changes are going to have to be run through Congress, right? That's right. So there's a big urgent push. The most urgent push is to try to change the law for um, these people who received humanitarian parole. And the U.S. is estimating it might grant parole up to 50,000 people to try to get Congress to give those people the same services afforded to other refugees. And then eventually, you know, this, it's very early in the conversations, but there are obviously some people advocating um, that these people be given some kind of path to citizenship, because right now there is no direct path. Well, it's going to be a huge undertaking. It's just starting. It's going to take a lot of time to get through all of it. So we'll continue to monitor what happens there. Michelle Hackman, reporter covering immigration at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. So we're left with a simple decision. Either follow through on the commitment made by the last administration and leave Afghanistan, or say we weren't leaving and commit another tens of thousands more troops going back to war. That was the choice, the real choice. Joining us now is Olivia Beavers, congressional reporter at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Olivia. Thanks for having me. President Biden spoke on Tuesday and marked the official end of the Afghanistan war. Uh, He said he stood by his decision. Uh, The previous administration is the one that made this deal with the Taliban. So he made the decision. Are we going to, you know, end the war or continue in there for another decade? He said he decided not to extend the forever war and took full responsibility for the decision. He also said he respectfully disagreed with a lot of people. There's been a lot of criticism, obviously, on this messy withdrawal and said, you know, we probably couldn't have done evacuations earlier. It was always going to be messy and that it was definitely time to end this war. I take responsibility for the decision. Now, some say we should have started mass evacuations sooner. And couldn't this have been done, have been done in a more orderly manner? I respectfully disagree. Imagine if we've begun evacuations in June or July, bringing in thousands of American troops and evacuating more than 120,000 people in the middle of a civil war. There still would have been a rush to the airport, a breakdown in confidence and control of the government, and it still would have been very difficult and dangerous mission. Um, so, Olivia, I mean, any, any thoughts mm-hmm. on what the president had said? Yeah, you know, I think uh, President Biden was taking definitely a defensive posture. He was saying that he accepted responsibility, but he was trying to combat a lot of the criticism that he's received. And as to whether they could have done evacuations earlier, I know my colleagues had a story on this, that that there were a lot of different dynamics at play where um, the Biden administration and Congress were distracted after the Senate passed a bipartisan infrastructure deal, but but basically our reporting suggests that the evacuations could have begun earlier. So he is, he is fighting back against some of the criticisms, whether or not, you know, critics are going to agree with him is another thing. Right, exactly. And, you know, we've talked at length already about the evacuations. There are some Americans left there. Uh, the president also said, uh, you know, some of them are dual citizenship there and, and, you know, they maybe didn't want to leave earlier, but they do now. We're going to try to help everybody as much as we can, but, you know, closing the chapter on the war also means for Biden and the administration, you know, 
uh, looking to what's next and, and even politically, right? They have to move beyond this. They need to work on uh, the infrastructure bills that are going around. They need to continue mm-hmm. working on COVID. And in the meantime, right, you know, uh, Republicans, there's, there's still a lot of criticism going on about this. And we're seeing in Republican circles that, you know, they want to act now, whether, uh, you know, uh, the I word impeachment has been thrown around or some other type of action. Um, they they see this mess out as being uh, they see this withdrawal being very messy and they want to take a harder stance, as hard of a stance they can against the president. Well, well, let's let's break it down quickly, because, uh, you know, there is bipartisan criticism about how Biden has handled the withdrawal. Right. With Republicans, the base is really fired up, at least for conversations that I've had with moderates to Freedom Caucus members. They're saying that they're getting calls saying they want Biden court-martialed, they want him impeached, they want him to resign. And whether, you know, Republicans are in the minority in both the Senate and the House, so all of those options are just unlikely to ever come to fruition unless, you know, the House wins back the majority, and if they decide they still want to keep pushing forward with that. But the fact that, you know, McCarthy is trying to push them back, he's the, the, the GOP leader, and trying to say, you know, like, let's focus on protecting American lives, let's focus at the issue at hand. He's trying to hold some of these more um, fired up members at bay. And not everyone is on board with impeachment. Uh, you definitely have moderates saying, let's slow it down and, you know, let's go and collect the facts. But there is definitely this rising pressure that is coming after McCarthy. Right. And and as you mentioned, right, so they are in the minority in the House and Senate right now. It's it it would have to wait for the midterm elections for anything to change, really. So uh, this would be a long game for them, if anything. And, uh, you know, as you mentioned, the article, too, uh, Obviously, this is fresh in everybody's minds right now. We're going through it. But, uh, you know, if we wait to the next November, you know, the American public, how much will this still be weighing on them at that point? Exactly. You know, 15 months is a long time, especially in politics. Um, That's not to say that this isn't a serious issue that will be, you know, at the present of people's minds. But whether it will drive votes, that's another question that remains to be seen. Republicans that I talked to think that the situation is going to get worse, that we might start seeing videos of Americans or U.S. allies, Afghan allies being beheaded or dragged behind in a car. And they think if that starts reaching social media, the power and anger will be even more forceful against Biden. So that's that's something that they are hypothesizing could be coming down in the future, whether or not it does. We don't have a crystal ball, but they think that it's definitely going to get worse. And uh, yeah, we're, we're going to see if that's an issue in the midterms. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, but on the political level, right, they have to keep this up in in, uh, in the minds of Americans. So uh, for a lot of them, you know, it, it goes to messaging. They're, they're really turning to messaging at the local level. Um, you know, when congressmen and women go back to their districts and start talking to their constituents, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that, that this is this is the next phase of all of this stuff. Uh, uh, to not uh, let up on on the pressure. I know it's not a perfect parallel, but a few of my sources have also brought up. They're like, if you look outside of the Beltway, January 6th was such a big moment for the country when it happened with the Capitol attack. But 
there has been a lot of kind of push to move on outside of the beltway. Um, and they're curious if that's going to eventually happen with Afghanistan. Uh, we'll see. There's no perfect, you know, um, issue that, that can be replicated, right. but that's one thing that a few people are raising as, as parallels to this year. Yeah, and then even fears of who, you know, if they do go uh, through with some of these things, you know, who becomes the face of, of these uh, these bigger pushes? You know, Representative Marjorie, Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, comes to mind, uh, you know, uh, more moderate Republicans would be afraid of that, uh, you know, for, for her to be the face of these things like that. But these are all the political things that we're going to be going through, uh, you know, as the, the, the withdrawal continues to f- finally finish playing out, right? Uh, I mean, these are all the concerns that, Everybody has, and, and as I mentioned, uh, mm-hmm. they want to keep that pressure up on President Biden. Certainly, and another thing that Republicans brought up to me is during the Trump administration, Democrats impeached Trump twice, one for his contact with Ukraine uh, and the second one for January 6th. And they, for the majority of them, attacked the impeachment processes as being abuses of power, as Democrats doing it for political purposes. And they they're claiming that Democrats have opened the floodgates, you know, for Republicans to now do it to them. Now, I'm sure Democrats would argue that Republicans opened the floodgates with the Clinton impeachment. But um, that's that's the point that they're arguing right now is that it's just more of a tit for tat. And eventually every president will just eventually get impeached with the state of how politics is now. Um, But they they. Some of them are concerned. They, they say we were just on record publicly hammering Democrats for impeaching um, Trump for what we claim were political purposes and with unfair processes. And we cannot be the ones who turn around and do the exact same thing to Biden and just try to quickly impeach him, you know, without any due process or evidence or having what they deem high crimes and misdemeanors. Right, exactly. Yeah, and that, that would be the other process to go through, right? Uh, they see this as the wrong move, a weak move, but does this amount to high crimes and misdemeanors? And, and, and you know, it, just kind of even ongoing with that, uh, the, the fear on the other side, let's say something does happen with President Biden, um, they don't see uh, Vice President Kamala Harris as a suitable replacement either. That's another worry they have. That's definitely, I you know, I have one... Um, one Republicans say that they were actually raising the prospect of Kamala Harris being the replacement as a reason for talking down their base for not supporting impeachment. They go, would you prefer Kamala Harris or Joe Biden? And the constituent goes, well, Joe Biden. And they go, see, that's why we don't want to support impeachment, um, which I just find is sort of a fascinating argument yeah. that, um, that that this member was was putting forward. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of hurt. There's a lot of anger and frustration with this whole process, everything that we've gone through top to bottom uh, the past 20 years and uh, and obviously the last two weeks in this withdrawal. So this is not over. We're going to be hearing about a lot uh, about this for some time. And, and uh, as I mentioned, these are just kind of the political angles of it. Uh, but there's so much more to it all. Olivia Beavers, congressional reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.